What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. That's right, if you're a non-Catholic, maybe you were an active Catholic years ago, fell away from the faith for whatever reason. Maybe you've never been a Catholic, but in any event, you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith. Maybe there's something that you heard about Catholicism that you just didn't understand. Well, maybe it's a misconception there. Let's get the uh, let's get things cleared up for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, if you have a question about the Catholic faith, or perhaps you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1-205-271-2985 or shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Ace McKay is on social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there as we speak. All you have to do is put your question in the comments box. Ace will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the call-in number, 833-288. EWTN, all lines open right now. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you, sir? Um, I'm, I am, uh, I'm tolerable, tolerable today. I, I'm glad to hear that. Yes, you can tolerate me. We haven't had a, a lunch update lately. Are you still in the rut? Um, well, yes, it's a delightful rut. You know, it's just, it's just lentils and whole grain uh, flatbread every day. Still tasty. Still very good and healthy. All right. Here's an email we received from Brian in the UK. Hey, Dr. David, my uh, dad was Catholic, but he married a Church of England woman, and I was brought up in the Church of England. Unfortunately, I did not attend church for about 50 years, as my wife and family were not religious. Now, I go to the Catholic Church every day, and if possible, to Mass. I have done this for the last four years. Will I have a chance to go to heaven? Over the 50 years of not attending church, I did pray every day. Please help as I try to confess my sins every day. Regards, Brian in the UK. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate the question. So, of course, uh, God desires that everyone be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and that includes you. And it sounds like you've lived, in many ways, an exemplary life. And and uh, uh, so it, the the... Your ecclesiastical past mm-hmm. uh, is no barrier, uh, to be sure, to the life of heaven, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, speaking as a Catholic, I see that you're going to the Catholic Church. I'm, I'm wondering what's stopping you from taking the plunge and fully entering the Catholic Church. If that's where your faith is and that's where your conscience is, uh, wouldn't you be better off if you just if you just bit the bullet, got confirmed, and became a Catholic and could live a fully ecclesial life as a Catholic Christian? I, you might just consider that, and 
If you have some reason that you feel like you can't do that, I'd love it if you would write me back and tell me what that is. Absolutely. And thank you so much uh, for your email from the UK. Hope that you uh, continue to enjoy the program. Here's one now from uh, Gerald, or Jerry, if you will. Dr. Anders, after reading Chapter 5 in the Acts of the Apostles, I am deeply disturbed that Ananias and Sapphira received death for withholding a portion of profit from selling their property. Well, Jesus was about life, healing, and defeating death, exactly the opposite of what is written. What is it that I'm not understanding? Yeah, thanks. So, um, uh, to be clear, Ananias and Sapphira uh, died not because they withheld a portion of the funds from the sale of their land. That's not why they died. And the apostle says, you can do with the money what you want. It's your money, it's your land. They, the, the sin they committed was they lied about it. When Peter said, is this the full amount you got for the land? And they didn't want to look stingy, so they said yes, and it wasn't. So it was the lie, the dissimulation, mm. that was the issue. Okay. Um, now, I do want to challenge your characterization of Jesus, suggesting that... Um, Jesus never exercises judgment over anyone. Um, and that's definitely not the way he presents himself in the gospel. Christ actually said, um, uh, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. It'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Ouch. And um, it's, it's pretty clear from some of the parables like Matthew 25 that Christ is very much a judge of the earth and will render to people according to their deeds. And so the, the, the picture that Jesus is, like, would never pass judgment, uh, that's not true. In fact, he exhorts the church to do just that in Matthew chapter 18. is a circumstance in which he admonishes the church to, in fact, excommunicate unrepentant sinners. So Jesus was about bringing, bringing people to repentance and faith and salvation, to be sure. Um, but not without a regard for justice and, and truth. Uh, now, obviously, it's not generally the case that liars get struck dead in the midst of the church assembly today, and I think we have to look at this as an extraordinary moment in the church's history, um, and it's meant to be illustrative that you know, the, truth, the church should be a place of truth as well as generosity and charity, and this is you know, to be a warning to us, but it's not the normal mode of God's behavior in our ecclesiastical affairs. Exactly. If it uh, were, I think we would not have anybody in ecclesiastical affairs. We'd all yeah. be dead. <laughs> Jerry, thanks for your email. One more quick before the break. Uh, this is from Lawrence. I have read that in order to receive a plenary indulgence, one must be free of any connection to sin. What does that mean practically? How does one achieve the state of having no connection to sin? Well, there's no attachment to sin. Connection implies something a little bit different, I think. So it means you don't want to sin. Yeah, that's what it boils down to. You, you don't want to sin. You're not you're not maintaining a place in your heart, uh, you know, a little corner of your mind where you're you're sort of you know laying room for the occasions of sin down the road in case. They, I mean, you really don't want to sin, like at all. Period. You you want to doesn't mean you're going to succeed, but you have the intention to live a perfect life. There it is. Well, we do appreciate that, Lawrence. Glad we could answer your question today on today's program. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Hey, we've got, uh, looks like, four lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. A couple of lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, love to talk with you today, 833-288-3986. You know, the uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary signifies the great purity and love of the heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary for God. And August is dedicated as the month of devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. You can join in this devotion to Mary with art, medals, pendants, prayer cards, and so much more. They're available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's begin with Pam, a first-time caller from New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Hello, Pam. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. I listened to it yesterday for the first time, and I was on hold, so I never got through, so I figured I'd try again in the beginning. Um, yeah, I was raised Catholic and, you know, um, had all the sacraments and everything, and, you know, I went to church every Sunday, went to Mass mm-hmm. and confession, and, you know, I just believed I was a loyal, faithful Catholic, and also believed when I died I was going to go to heaven. But when I was 25, I never read the Bible. I, you know, had catechism, of course, but I never really sat down and read the Bible. So at 25, I did. And when I came across, and well, they suggested um, to read the book of John, the Gospel of John first. And when I saw in John 3, verses 1 through 7, where Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and, you know, asked, you know, and Jesus about, you know, how he's doing these miracles and stuff. And and Jesus replied that unless a man be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I never heard the word born again, and I even went in the eighth grade to a Catholic school. I never was, I never heard that term, never. So then I started searching more where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes on to the Father except through me. So then I felt that, okay, being Catholic doesn't save you, uh, being a religion, and then the more I searched, I found out that you need to repent and receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Then you're saved and born again and written in the Book of Life, which I never heard in the Catholic faith. So I don't belong to any religion. I don't go to, you know, I mean, I'm not in any um, denomination. I just, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't, you know, but that is why I left the church. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question, or the comment, actually. And in your situation, your narrative is very familiar to me. It's extremely familiar to me. And uh, I myself grew up in a non-Catholic uh, religious community. It was a Protestant religious community where your kind of story was—that's that, what I heard all the time, every week. You know, when I was— uh, you know, five, six, seven years old, I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart, to repent of my sins and receive him as my Lord and Savior so that I could know for sure I was going to heaven. And I didn't need a pope or a priest or a 
confessionals or saints or sacraments, and uh, you know, I had my own personal relationship with Jesus, and and I knew that was just great. And so I I grew up in very much the same way that you grew up. I mean, that you that you have come to embrace. And uh, oddly enough, however, I had the opposite experience of after studying the Bible thoroughly and the Bible as well as the history of the church with some with some intensity for quite a long time. I, I came to the conclusion that the Catholics had the the better side of that argument. Now I give you some of the reasons that I that I think that. So you referenced John chapter three verse one to seven, and of course the Catholics have this in their Bible, and they read it in Mass, and their saints and theologians have commented on these texts for many thousands of years. So we're we're deeply aware of these texts, and uh, I, I wonder if you know about the history of interpretation of this passage because it's something that Catholics have written about for 2,000 years, and we definitely know the text is there. I might go so far as to say the text is there because the Catholic Church put it there. And you might not be aware of the history of the New Testament canon, the list of biblical books that went into the New Testament, but it was compiled by the Catholic Church, by Catholic councils, by Catholic bishops who said these are the books that are divinely inspired. So we wouldn't have put it in there if we didn't believe that it came from God. And and universally, and, and not just Catholics for that matter, but pretty much Every Christian group, whether Catholic or Orthodox or, or any other group through the centuries that has ever read this text, uh, walked away with the strong conviction that Jesus was talking about the sacrament of baptism, since he speaks of being uh, born again by water and the Spirit. And when you look at parallel passages in the rest of the New Testament, you find that that intuition is is really uh, substantiated. So St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, for example, that we die with Christ through baptism and are raised again with him to new life. Um, as St. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, that it's baptism that now saves you, not the washing of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience to God. Uh, Titus, book of Titus, Paul speaks about washing and regeneration in the Holy Spirit. Again, that washing imagery comes in. And in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 3, Paul says that anyone who has been baptized has clothed himself with Christ. So, Peter, of course, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, says that if you repent and are baptized, you will receive the remission of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Christ himself said whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So the the larger context of the New Testament, as well as 2,000 years of Christian interpretation, all agree that the meaning of this text is baptism. And there are some clues about that within the Gospel of John itself. I'll give you a few. So it's telling that the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speak explicitly about the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Eucharist. Jesus says, you know, take, eat, this is my body, and so forth. Uh, But John doesn't. John seems to speak in a more elliptical way. Um, But there are two places in John where if he were going to talk about baptism and the Eucharist, this is where it would be. And it would be John 3. And it would be John chapter 6, where he speaks about washing and renewal in the Holy Spirit, and he speaks about eating his flesh that's, that's, eating his flesh that's true food and drinking his blood that's true drink. And so you might ask the question, well, you know, why would John be more elliptical about it? Why wouldn't he just come out and use the words Eucharist? He actually does use the word Eucharist in that John 6, but in another way. Why wouldn't he just come out and say the word baptism here? And what many interpreters believe is that the Gospel of John was written at a time when the church had already developed the practice of not using those words 
because they intended to conceal the mysteries of the church from outsiders. It was called the discipline of the secret. It's well attested in Christian history. And John's gospel is written later than the others. It's probably in the 90s AD. And so it existed at a time when baptism and the Eucharist were well established in the Christian community. Yeah. And so the recipients of this t- gospel knew darn well what they were doing. Like they were practicing baptism. They were practicing the Eucharist. John writes a letter in which he's able to write of these things elliptically, and they receive them that way, and they understand them that way, and 2,000 years of Christian history substantiates that claim. Um, It also occurs to me that the language that you use, about I need to pray to receive Christ and receive him into my heart as my personal Savior, apart from any ecclesiastical organization. Um, I was taught that myself growing up, And then I went and studied the Bible intensely, and I found out there's no passage of Scripture that says that. Uh, What I found is something like Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws, you know, an evangelistic track that would take verses out of context, one verse from here and one verse from there, and arrange them in a logical order in order to make this kind of narrative compelling— but when I went to those verses in context, they never said what Bill Bright said they said. They mm. never said what the evangelical tracts said they said. And th- that realization became more firmly entrenched in me when I went and read the earliest Protestant theologians, those that rejected Catholic doctrine, rejected the authority of the Pope, rejected the authority of Catholic tradition. And when I read those books, I discovered that even people like Martin Luther or John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli or Cranmer, earliest Protestant thinkers, they didn't know anything about this inviting Jesus into your heart business. That's not how they understood incorporation into the Christian life. And for you, if I understand you, and it was once the same for me, a critical component of being a Christian is this disaffiliation from any organized community. Right, that's a key element. You're saying, I don't belong to any religion, I don't belong to any congregation, I don't belong to any denomination. It's me and Jesus. I have this assurance in my heart. But when I studied church history, when I studied the, the Gospels, when I studied the Scriptures, I realized that that's not how Jesus himself presents our relationship to him. But rather, Christ in the Gospels presents a relationship to Christ that's very much embedded in a Christian community. And when he made provision to hand on the faith, he authorized people to speak in his name. He said things like, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain are retain. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Go unto all nations and teach everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. And whoever eats this bread, with him we become one loaf, one body in Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's a corporate identity to the Christian faith established by Jesus, and the way in which I come into relationship with Christ is through his body, the church, which Paul tells us is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so, as I'm learning these things, I'm thinking, well, this is very different from the way I grew up. This is a completely different picture of the Christian life. And many people grow up in the Catholic Church without ever seeing the big picture. Yeah. And it is to them just an amalgam of rituals, and they don't understand the logic of the system or how it relates to their relationship with Jesus, and that is a shame. It's their loss. Well, it's not their fault. Yeah, right. And that sounds to me like what you experienced. But 
uh, those of us who are converts who have read and studied our way into Catholicism often have the benefit of sort of having to try to t- take a big picture view before we step in. My understanding now is that I have a far richer and deeper relationship with Christ than I ever did as an independent Protestant because Christ offers me so many means, yeah. so many instruments, so many paths by which I can grow in intimacy with him through other people, through the sacraments of the church, through the confessional, through the teaching office of the Pope, through the scriptures, through the traditions, through the liturgy, and all of them are love notes from Christ. And I, I am able to look back on my earlier experiences now, not as, not, with, not as though it had no value, but it was denuded of a lot of the values that Christ meant to share with me. Pam, delightful to talk with you today. Please call us back another time. Love to hear from you again. It is called to communion here on EWTN. We'll get back to the phones in a second. Uh, Beth is watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Beth says, I'm considering conversion, and I'm reading, watching, and listening to everything. I'm enjoying the Bible in a year and catechism in a year studies very much. Now, I keep hearing about studying the early church fathers for better understanding. Which, which books do you recommend? Dr. Andrews. Wow. Okay, so the, the the church fathers can keep you occupied for the rest of your life, right? They really can. Um, there are compilations and anthologies of the church fathers that are that are worth uh, piling into. Mike Aquilina is a Catholic author who's big on these kinds of compilations, and some of his books would be a nice way to dive in. But I think there's no substitution for reading in the originals themselves. So I'm going to give you some names of church fathers that you should read. And the, the top of the list, beyond uh, any shadow of a doubt, is Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine of Hippo. Not only a great saint, but also one of the great intellects of the Western tradition. And he wrote voluminously, but most importantly, you should read his book, The Confessions, which is the first intellectual autobiography in the Western canon and a magnificent piece of theology and philosophy. Yeah. So you, you should read The Confessions by St. Augustine. Um, uh, you might want to take a look at On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, the saint who was very instrumental with the Council of Nicaea and the definition of the dogma of the Trinity, or, or Athanasius's Life of St. Anthony about the founder of Egyptian monasticism. While we're on the topic of G- Egyptian monasticism, you might look at John Cashin, Cashin's conferences, his interviews with the desert monks, or a modern author, Benedicta Ward, her compilation of sayings of the Desert Fathers would be another one you might want to look at. Um, you might want to read uh, some of the writings of the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, 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 Basil the Great, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, mm-hmm. Gregory Nazianzus. You might want to read the sermons of St. John Chrysostom, or some of the treatises of, Maxi- of Maximus the Confessor, like his Hundred Chapters on Love. Uh, you might read an early compilation of second-century Christian authors called the Apostolic Fathers. There are many editions of that in, in circulation that you might want to take a peek at. Um, and, uh, you know, I can I can really keep you going all day. I mean, just, <laughs> just that, just what I listed, yeah. I mean, that, that'll take you months. There you go. Appreciate that. And uh, one more here, a little quick comment before we go to break. This is from Cecilia on Facebook. Cecilia says, I have often said, I wish I had a small Dr. Anders to carry around with me, uh, praying for the Holy Spirit to enlighten me each time I'm approached by a non-Catholic with a question. Thank you so much, Dr. Anders. Well, you're very sweet, and um, I, um, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about the image of a small Dr. Anders. Perching on her shoulder. <laughs> but, well, you know what you can have? You can have our podcast in your, in your, in your phone or your, or your podcast player. You can do that. And, you know, when it comes to being approached by non-Catholics, 
Uh, I'm going to give you a page out of the playbook from my friend John Martinoni. He says, you can always say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Yep. I love that. I got that from John. He's like, just tell them you don't know, but you'll get back to them. Then go do the research. Call us and ask. We'll talk to you about it. And they'll appreciate the honesty. That's right. There you go. Hey, Cecilia, thanks for your kind words about the show and for Dr. Andrews. We'll get back to full phone lines in just a moment. You're listening to Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Glad you're with us for the Thursday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Back to the phones now. Here is Dean, a first-time caller from Moore, Oklahoma, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hello, Dean. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, My question is, uh, a Christian in good faith, when they die, they, they go on to heaven. If that is the case, uh, what is the second coming of Christ where all of the dead in Christ are raised? Yeah, Stop thanks. It. I really appreciate the question. Let's clarify one thing. Uh, Christ's teaching is not that Christians who die in good faith will go to heaven. That's not Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is those that die with the love of God in their hearts will go to heaven. Uh, and they will be judged according to their works, whether they be good or bad. That's the teaching of sacred scripture and of Christ. So the question of faith is important, but it's not the ultimate question, which is that of charity. That's that's love, benevolence towards one's neighbor. Uh, the purpose of the final judgment, Christ's return in glory, is that first of all, there is a physical resurrection from the dead. So the soul separated from the body does not stay separated from the body, but is reunited with the physical body raised from the dead, as Christ was raised from the dead. And then there is a general judgment. And the general judgment is when God pronounces judgment, Christ pronounces judgment over all the nations of the world in a public forum. And you might say, well, what's the point of that? And it's, it's kind of like the difference between getting a letter in the mail saying you made the dean's list and being recognized at the graduation ceremony in front of your peers. Well, I mean, the, the reality is that, you know, you came out the head of your class, right, one way or the other. But there's a public forum in which, that, in which that accomplishment is recognized. And so the saints will be glorified in the sight of the world, and those that persecuted the saints will be called out. And so you think about the reversal of fortunes implied in something like uh, the second century martyrs that went to their death in the Roman amphitheater with the crowds jeering and the Roman governors calling down curses upon them as they were eaten by lions— and on the last day, uh, those same martyrs will stand in judgment of those that persecuted them, and, and, and they will be glorified by their Father in heaven. So uh, that's, that's part of the logic of the, of the second coming and of the general resurrection. Dean, thanks so much for your call. Here is Jeff now, a first-time caller in—oops, um, yeah, yeah, I got that right. Jeff is a first-time caller from Riverside, Illinois, listening on his Roku device. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, thank you very much for taking my call, mm-hmm. um, and uh, thank you so much, Doctor, for all the information you're sharing with uh, your listeners and viewers. Um, I had a question about the connection between God as omniscient and free will. Um, I'm a recent revert to my, my faith, by the way, and I should, by way of background, say that I actually have taught a couple of classes at Wheaton College, where I believe you attended. Um, although, after one of them, I saw a student um, course evaluation survey remark that said that a Catholic shouldn't be allowed to teach here, which was 
kind of an interesting bit of feedback to my <laughs> my first time teaching there. But anyway, um, I have a friend that I've been talking to about some really bad hands that she's been dealt in her life. Um, uh, father abandoned the family, uh, mother uh, became abusive, and just failed by several others in significant relationships that she's had in her life. And this had, her way of thinking about this is that God, as all-knowing, knew all of this was going to happen. And so she has come to be uh, to believe that this is evidence that God either doesn't love her or loves her a lot less than God loves other people that had great families and and so forth, or that God made a mistake uh, with her being born into this family uh, and then having these other relationships. Um, I've been trying to answer that by saying um, God knows all the possibilities, but God didn't know that different people in her lives were going to make bad choices or go down a sinful path and cause collateral damage, um, her response is that God should have really considered the the odds of things like that, you know, so um, having uh, someone born to uh, parents that had really weren't set up to be good parents, for example, with the odds of, of having a good outcome would be pretty minimal. So I follow you. Obviously, heavy stuff, but I was hoping you could try to uh, help me um, in my understanding. I, of the, I the follow gender. you. I understand exactly. If I might ask you, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm, I'm dying of curiosity to know what subject matter you taught at Wheaton College. I taught the history of art. Fantastic. You know, I had a wonderful art history class when I was at Wheaton back in, like, 1991. Yeah? So, yeah, it was a great department. So, anyway, that's kind of neat. Um, I'm not surprised that you got that comment. We debated it in my day, too, as to whether or not Catholics were even Christians and whether they would have any part in a school dedicated to Christ and his kingdom, as the motto goes. Wow. So that was a, that was a live issue on campus. Um, but, uh, so, I'm really sensitive to your friend's issue, it's uh, an issue that's touched my family as well. Um, I have uh, dear ones in my family who's not from my parents, but uh, for other parents, uh, whose family situations were really horrific growing up. And, and I have seen the collateral damage down through the generations, and it, it's touched me personally quite deeply. So I'm really, really sympathetic to her point of view. Um, I'm afraid that we don't have the excuse, if we want to use that word, of saying that God didn't know this would happen. We don't, we don't have that excuse. That, that's not the Catholic doctrine on God. The Catholic doctrine on God is that not a sparrow falls apart from the will of God. That's Jesus' exact teaching. And, and it suggests that God is somehow remote from the activities of his creatures in a way that they exercise an agency that's really independent of his providential control. And, and of course, that's not the Catholic view either. We're not deists. Um, we think that to quote Dionysius, the Areopagite, God is the being that beings have. Like, the, the connection between God and creatures is profoundly intimate, and um, God is, God's immensity, the fact that all of God is present to every particle of creation at every moment, is what undergirds our very act of being. 
St. Thomas says that God is the very act of subsistent being itself. So there, he's just not remote in that way, all right, and knows everything from the beginning to the end. So that's not the, that's not the path we have to take. Um, what we do instead is we say that God has a reason that is unintelligible to us in this life, that God can bring good out of evil, um, irrespective of our ability to see that now. Now, presumably in the next life, we'll look back and go, aha, now I can see the intelligibility mm. of that plan. There's no way I can see it in this life. That is cold comfort. I understand how, how frustrating that is as a response. There's not, it's logically unassailable. Like, it works philosophically. Yeah. It doesn't work pastorally. No. Right? Um, because we want for God to be what feels more paternal to us than that. And so I have two things to say about that. One of them is that as Christians, our task is not just to yak about the love of God, but to manifest it. And it may very well be that the way this woman encounters a merciful father is through you or through other Christian people in her life. Um, and I really think that's the appropriate response. Christ came not to give us a theodicy, a philosophical answer to the problem of evil. He came, he came to give us an existential answer to the problem of evil, namely by, by defeating it yeah. in his own person, and then, and then commissioning us, sending us as, as the extensions of his incarnational ministry to be that transformative presence in the world. And uh, I was reading Pope Francis recently, and he was talking about the difference between announcing the kerygma, you know, announcing the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and being the kerygma, yeah. being the merciful presence of Christ such that people can experience the love of the Father through your eyes. Mm. And so that's, that is, that's the proper pastoral approach to somebody who's suffering, right? To be present to them, to listen to them, mm -hmm. to sit with them, to suffer with them, and to express mm -hmm. our frustration and ignorance together. This sense of why I don't know why mm -hmm. is written into the Bible itself. Psalm 88 is my favorite psalm of the Bible because it is a soul who's suffering like this intensely. He's been cut off from all of his friends. God is completely absent from him, and he is bereft of hope. Amen. Yeah. That's it. Amen. There's no, you know, and here comes the white horse and the white hat. It's just everything is terrible, signing off, Hebrew poet, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow. And I appreciate that because providence dignifies that sentiment by making it canonical. God allows that to be in the Bible and says this is inspired scripture. It is okay to express your frustration and, mis and lack of understanding of God in his ineffability. And that brings me to my last point, which is about ineffability. A as much as we say, and rightly so, that God is a loving Father, um, that he is uh, uh, more present to us than we are to ourselves, uh, that he is uh, intimately involved in everything in our lives, God is also intensely mysterious and, and utterly transcendent. And so the language that we use of love and personhood and closeness and proximity is analogous language and cannot be interpreted or lived as if we were speaking of just a man. And there is something profoundly other about God. And, and when I am intensely suffering, 
I find it personally, and not everyone finds this, I find it personally more comforting to reflect on the utter remoteness of God and how he is so unlike me than to try to squeeze my image of God into an anthropomorphic model drawn from, say, my affectionate relationship with my human father. Um, because if I do that, then I can't make any sense of my experiences. Yeah. Jeff, appreciate your call. Thank you so much for it. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Hey, if you're up early in the morning, be sure to join us for Fathers Know Best. That's Monday through Friday mornings, 4 a.m. Eastern. You can listen to uh, Father John Ricardo, Father Larry Richards, and Father Benedict Rochelle. On tomorrow's program, Father Larry Richards reflects on Jesus' Bread of Life discourse in John 6 and the Holy Spirit. Again, check it out Monday through Friday mornings, early, 4 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Bev now, a first-time caller from North Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey, Bev, what's on your mind today? Yes, thank you for taking my call. What I'm calling about, I have two questions. My Lutheran brother-in-law asked me where in the Bible it says the prayer before meals, the blessest, O Lord. And then what I should have done when I told him I didn't know is asked him where the Lutheran um, prayer before meals, you know, come Lord Jesus, be our guest is. So I'm wondering, is, are either of those in the Bible and where? Yeah, thanks. So your intuition is absolutely correct. You know, when I saw this question coming down the pike, I, I started looking up all these Lutheran prayers that are not in the Bible, uh -huh, you know, I mean, uh -huh. beginning with Luther's liturgy, you know, I mean, like Luther Luther composed many prayers, hymns, psalms, liturgical texts that are not explicitly biblical, uh, and uh, and when he did deal with the scriptures, he twisted them and misinterpreted them, in my judgment. Mm. So the criteria, where is your prayer in the Bible, um, is, uh, is nonsensical. Uh, now, the Bible itself makes so no, no such demand upon our prayer life. The mandate that everything we say or do should be founded on the express words of the Bible is itself not a biblical mandate. Yep. Not a biblical mandate, and it's impossible to live by. So there you go. Bev, thanks so much for your call. We're going to stay in Minnesota, this time talking with Adam, a first-time caller listening on The Great Real Presence as well. Adam, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I just, uh, we're looking for a little direction. Um, a few months ago, uh, we attended the baptism of our, one of our nephews at an ELCA Lutheran church, and uh, the pastor said, you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and I wouldn't have thought anything of it, but I know that that priest a while ago that uh, said, we baptize you instead of I baptize you, um, all of his baptisms were rendered invalid. Um, so I guess my wife and I were just looking, you know, are we being too scrupulous? Are we... You know, should we contact the church? Should we, you know, what should we, what do you think the best thing Okay, to do? thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, without a doubt, it's an invalid baptism. Not a valid baptism. All right. So that, that would just get that out of the way right off the bat. What to do about it? That's more complicated. I, uh, I'm pretty darn sure that other Lutheran denominations don't do that. Uh, ELCA uh, sometimes is a bit more loosey-goosey with texts. Uh, it, you know, out of curiosity, it might be, I mean, I don't have the copy of the ELCA, you know, Book of Worship in front of me. It'd be, it'd be easy to find, just go on the internet and look it up. Be interested to see if this particular minister was doing his own thing, or if that's actually what the liturgical texts of his tradition tell him to do. If you find that there is a divergence mm -hmm. between what his, his liturgical texts say and what he did, 
Then you could tell your, I think you said it was your niece and nephew, you could tell your brother and sister-in-law, or sister and brother-in-law, whichever it is, hey, did you know that your minister didn't follow his own liturgical program and you might uh, think about calling the Lutheran bishop and having this thing done right? Now, if that's if that's not the issue, if the whole ELCA has gone this route, then that's you don't have that option. Um, it's probably little you can do uh, to influence your family because if, if this is their denomination, they're going to follow what their denomination tells them to do. But you can file this away like a quasi-godparent in the back of your mind, and if at such time that niece or nephew decide they want to enter the Catholic Church, you know, it would be your duty, I think, it'd be incumbent upon you to inform um, uh, the Catholic priest that, you know, their baptism was invalid, I was there, and this is what was said, and they would be, they would be conditionally rebaptized. You know, there's no rebaptism in the Catholic Church, but there's conditional baptism. If there's a doubt about the validity of a baptism, we can do what's called a conditional baptism and take care of the problem. Appreciate your call, Adam. Thanks so much for it today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go now to San Antonio, talk with Chris, uh, listening to Guadalupe Radio. Chris, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I wanted to know if Jesus prayed for the dead when he was here on earth. And, and if the answer is yes, how do we know that? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. I think we can safely assume that he did, uh, because that was the Jewish practice at the time, as it continues to be the Jewish practice today. So the, the, the practice of praying for the dead and seeking their intercession is, is Judaic in origin. It's not of Christian origin. It actually comes from Second Temple Judaism, and it would have been commonly done in, in Jesus' own day. Uh, so I think there's a you know, pretty darn good chance that he would have done this in the synagogue. Um, but we don't have a record of it in sacred scripture, and that's okay because we don't have a record of most of the things that Jesus did in sacred scripture, and yeah. fortunately for us, Christians are not restricted to the express words of scripture in formulating their understanding of the faith. Thanks so much for your question. Call to communion here on EWTN. Bob is listening in Gaithersburg, Maryland, on his Alexa device. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today, sir? Okay, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Dr. Andrews, for taking my call. I'm 87 years old. I've called once before, and you're good help. Thank you for helping everybody, incidentally. I learned so much from you. I listen to you five days a week at 2 o'clock religiously, and I like this sidekick, Tom. Anyway, well, thank you. Thank you. Mass fulfills me. I'm happier going to Mass, da 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 However, I get the impression that I, as Bob, should be making a sacrifice, and I don't know if I'm thinking wrongly. Now, I've asked some other Catholic friends, and nobody really tells me anything concrete. I can tell you concretely. I can tell you concretely. Um, it is imperative that you offer sacrifice. It is of the essence of the Mass that you offer a sacrifice. The Mass is the sacrifice of the New Covenant. That is why we go to Mass. We do not go to Mass to receive Holy Communion. I mean, it's okay to receive Holy Communion. It's a good thing. That is not the, the primary function of Holy Mass. The primary function of Holy Mass is the offer of the sacrifice. The sacrifice that you are offering is the sacrifice of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity that's present on the altar. That's why the priest prays, pray, my brethren, that my sacrifice and yours, remember the words of the Mass, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to Almighty God. Um, we go and we offer the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood to God. 
and ourselves along with him. So your act of being there, your act of committing yourself to the faith, to the church, to the good of your neighbor, to the honor and to the will of God, is your sacrifice. St. Paul says that we are to offer our bodies, that is to say our whole lives, this is our spiritual sacrifice. You can look that up in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So going there as a sacrifice, committing yourself to the Lord as a sacrifice, participating in the rite of the Mass, R-I-T-E, rite, uh, in the offering of Christ's body and blood is a sacrifice. And for some of us, sitting through the homily is a sacrifice, <laughs> right? But it's sacrifice all, all around. And also your, your tithes and offerings. Like, if you notice that when you make your offering in the church— that the gifts, the money that people give that's collected in the offering baskets, is carried to the altar along with the elements that will be consecrated to become the body and blood of Christ. The bread and the wine and the money go up together, yeah. and we give thanks to God for these fruits of the earth that we offer back to him. That includes your donations to the church and its ministry. And if you live in some cultures that maybe don't have much of a, of a cash economy, I, I know priests from other parts of the world, well, you know, people bring in produce, Sure. And and lay that at the altar. They bring what they can, and mm -hmm. they give it to God along with the offering of Christ's body and blood. And then, of course, those those, uh, those economic resources can then be distributed to the poor and to the needs of the church. Bob, thanks so much for your call. Here is Tom now in North Carolina listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Tom. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Thank you very much. Um, I've got a question about um, the. I guess it's about the nature of free will, and maybe I. Maybe what I need to do is I need a little help issue spotting what my question is. But um, I, I discuss uh, with atheists all the time. I argue with them good naturedly. Um, been doing it for for decades, and they tell me, you know, there's no. When we talk about free will, there's no such thing as free will, because human beings, you know, are stuck to their nature or their nurture or both. And um, and so what I tell them is I give an example of Francis of Assisi, the one I, I what I have developed is this theory where I think, you know, I think most of us are just on automatic pilot. Most of us just act according to our nature or nurture about 98 percent of the time. But every once in a while, somebody like St. Francis of Assisi gets off the horse and does the thing that he found revolting a moment ago, which is to hug the leper. Or Mother Teresa, the other one is habituating, habituating yourself, changing your habits. Somebody like Mother Teresa, every single day, she probably lived 98% of her life in, in a state of free will. So I, I know we're running out of time here. I just wanted to ask if you could elaborate a little bit on free will and whether I'm completely off base or whether I'm onto something. Thank you. Yes, exactly. So your, your friend's position is that the only free will worth the name is what philosophers would call a libertarian free will, an utterly indeterminate free will, well, the, where the will chooses literally for no reason. Right? And that if, this, if there, anything conditions that choice, any kind of appetite or habit... Uh, inclination, nature, or nurture, then your friend says, well, that's not freedom. Now, the response to that, that a Catholic would make, or even if you don't have to be a Catholic, just be a philosopher and make this response, is, well, that's not what I mean by freedom. Mm. When I use the word freedom, I don't mean a kind of indeterminate libertarian free will where the will chooses for no reason. What I mean by freedom is an informed moral choice where I can deliberate between ends. You know, I can say uh, pizza is good, and uh, and people are good, 
and I can deliberate, you know, whether to choose the good of the pizza or the good of the people. They're both good, and I can make a rational determination about which I'm actually going to elect. And, uh, and, that, and that, that capacity to deliberate about moral ends is what I mean by freedom. Now, I grant to you that if I am vicious in my personality and habits, I may habitually choose pizza over people. And you are correct that, that something like grace, something that comes from outside the system, uh, is necessary to jolt me out of that conditioned response into a new way of choosing that can grow into a new habit pattern called a virtue. And that's what Catholics have always said, that apart from grace, apart from something outside that internal system of the body and the mind, there needs to be some influence that comes into the system that can redirect me to the good. Without grace, I can do no good. That is a Catholic position. But rather than calling that a loss of freedom or lack of freedom, from the Catholic point of view, it is precisely grace that enables me to be free. It's precisely grace that enables this moral deliberation to take place in which I actually have power to choose the good. So St. Augustine would say the freest man is the man who habitually chooses the good, the hierarchically ordered good. I can feel that uh, in my own life. Uh, Tom, is that helpful for you? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. You are most welcome. Glad that we could get that one in here at the very end of the show. I will say this. There were several questions that came in on social media that we just could not get to. Chike on Facebook, also Jay on YouTube, Rose on YouTube. We're going to hold those over until tomorrow's program, and we'll do those in the first segment of the show or as, as early as we can uh, so that you won't have to, uh, you know, call back or send us back. We've got those questions. Charles has saved them. They'll be waiting for you uh, tomorrow on the uh, very first segment of the program. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for the live and uh, 11 p.m. Eastern for the Encore, 8 p.m. on the West Coast there. And, of course, you can always check out the podcast 24-7 at EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team, including Ace today, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Friday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a great day. God bless.